So, Father, thank you for your people that are here today. Thank you for, uh, Lord, we just engage you right now. And we engage your presence, your glory, your fire, your light, your power, your holy, ineffable names. Father, we bless you. We invite you to come by your presence. Lord, I ask for your anointing right now to just come upon my lips, that the words that would come out of my mouth would come from you and be impactful and be life-changing. We thank you for the presence of the archangels and the angels and all the myriads of beings that surround your throne and cover us right now. And we thank you for the supply of your spirit. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for open doors into the eternal. And we ask, Father, that our lives would be transformed by your light, your life, and by your power. We ask for your healing presence to just flow in a powerful way right now through this room, in our hearts, in our spirits, in our minds, and in our bodies. I thank you today that chains fall off, that bondages are broken. And, Father, help us to address the traditions that cause us to miss out on the fullness of your glory and still hold us in bondage, even those we hold to be dear and true. (laughs) So, Lord, set us free from those as well, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, I want to talk... um, Kind of the the phrase, and I apologize if this is if you find this offensive, um, you might need to get a life. <laughs> Maybe I'm in one of those moves today, so just you know I'm going to try really hard. I'm handling a very delicate topic, and I'm going to try to handle it in a good way. And y'all are going to give me grace, right? Um. But what I, what I, the phrase that I, that I kept hearing uh, for 2018 is shift happens. Shift, S-H-I-F-T, happens. And I want to explore this uh, in a number of avenues throughout the year in terms of looking at how we perceive things, what we believe about things, and how if we want a, a shift to take place, then something has to change, not just externally, but something has to change, or many things might have to change in terms of our internal maps and belief systems about what's true. How many of you have heard prophecies over the years? You've been at this long enough. You've heard prophecies over the years. God's doing a new thing. Uh, <laughs> we're in transition. You know, uh, God's lead, the, the cloud has moved and God's leading us on. And sometimes that type of stuff can cause us to move into a very passive place where we're just waiting for the next thing that God is doing. And it's important to realize that in order for anything to take place, a shift must take place in you first. The Bible calls it repentance. Now, repentance in the English is a very unfortunate term because... It comes from uh, it comes from the word penalty, repent, uh, and it has to do with with actually punishment. And so, kind of the idea that we, uh, you know, and it, it's it's generations old, but the idea, is particularly with the old revivalists and whatever, the idea of repentance was. Figure out what you're doing that's wrong. Figure out what you're doing that's a sin. Feel really, really, really bad about it. And so you'll change it, right? 
And it, it was usually focused on behavioral modification type of stuff. In the original languages, the word for repentance, and I know you've heard this before if you've been here any time at all, but for those of you that haven't, the original word is a Greek word, metanoia. And the word meta in Greek merely means to go beyond. And the word noia is the word where we get the word mind or mindset. So literally what repentance is, is it is a shifting of your mindset to the degree that your perceptions change. So when Jesus comes preaching the kingdom of God, he is uh, he is announcing its arrival. The kingdom of heaven is here or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled. That's how Mark puts it. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Shift your perception about the kingdom so that you can enter. Because you're not able to enter into anything that God is doing unless there is first a shift in your perception. That's why Jesus rebuked the Pharisees of his day by saying, you hold the key of knowledge, you yourself are not willing to go into the kingdom and you prevent those who are trying to do it themselves. Because the key is knowledge. So until your knowledge changes, until your perceptions or your beliefs shift or change, you do not have access to what God has made available. That's just the system that God has set up. God wanted to take the children of Israel into the promised land, but their perception was that they would not be able to do it, that there were too many giants, too many obstacles, too many strongholds. They said, we are in our own eyes as grasshoppers, and so we are in theirs. Now, if you read the story very carefully, when the next generation goes in, when they first go across the river, uh, Joshua sends spies as well. They go in across the river and they meet Rahab, right? And they go into Rahab's uh, house and, uh, and Rahab says, you know, what, what's been going on the last 40 years when we heard about what happened to the Egyptians, our hearts melted for fear. So the Israelites said, we're grasshoppers in our own eyes, and so we are in theirs, but it wasn't true. That was just their perception. But because their perception was that they could not take the land, they were closed off to the land. God says, even though I'm giving it to you, you can't have it because your perception tells you that you can't. So what opens something in the realm of the spirit and what opens something in the realm of God's glory and what opens something in the realm of the kingdom is your perception. So when your perception changes, when you repent, when you metanoia and your perceptions and beliefs change and shift, then what God has made available to you becomes available to you because it's the key that gets you in. So it's all about shifting consciousness. It's all about shifting perceptions. So healing can be provided, but sometimes you have to shift perceptions before you can experience healing. Pro- abundance, provision can be there for you financially, but you might have to shift perceptions before you can walk into what God is providing for you financially. And God himself has made himself available, completely available to us. But how we perceive the divine, how we perceive God, can determine the degree to which we're able to access his being or not. The problem is in our perceptions. So when we're talking about shifting, shifting makes something happen. But the shift has to be internal in order for you to have access. Does that make sense? So we want to look at shifting our beliefs about God. So let's look at this 
uh, parable. It's a parable of the minas. It's very similar to the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents is in Matthew's gospel. Hopefully you're familiar with it. If, if not, I'll give you enough information that you'll be able to follow. And mina, a mina is an amount of currency or money in the day in which Jesus was living and speaking. And so the parable goes essentially, just the basic sketch of it is this. A man comes who's very wealthy. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a, a guy who's really wealthy and he, he doles out his wealth, his wealth to different servants. To one he gives ten, to another he gives five, to another he gives one, Right? And then he says, do business until I come back. And he goes away on a journey. And so the one who had the the ten takes it and doubles it, or maybe he had five. I'm not getting the currency right, but you get the point. Each one doubles what they had. And when the master comes back, they present the increase that they got from doing business to the master. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. And he promotes them. You've got one servant, though, the one who just got the one, who comes to him in verse 20 and says, another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, watch this, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, And reaping what I did not sow, why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? And then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Watch what he says. Very important. He says, uh, you're a hard, I'm afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, you reap what you did not sow. And look how the master replies. He says, by your own words, I will judge you. In other words, he's not validating that he is the way the man says that he is. He's not saying, because I'm hard, I'm going to judge you. He's not saying, because I'm that way. He's simply saying, I'm going to allow you to experience what you have perceived. If that's how you perceive me, fine. I'm going to allow you to experience what you have perceived. Now, why? Now, if, and, and Jesus is saying the kingdom's like this. I mean, the, the picture is really that God is like this. Why would God be like that? Why would God do that? Because he created us to partner with him. He does not want to do something without us. He doesn't want to leave you out of the program. He had you out of the program in the beginning. <laughs> when there was just God. Before there was any creation, right? He, and, and so he has chosen to do things with you. And the way he set the system up is your perceptions either block you or give you access. And you and I are the ones who have to shift our perceptions. God will not shift our perceptions for us. He will hand us the key of knowledge, but we have to take the key and put it in the lock and turn it. Does that make sense? So he's not going to violate our perceptions because in order to do that, he's teaching us something other than how the kingdom operates. So when he says, look, I'm going to relate to you based on your perceptions, what he's saying is the kingdom operates based on those perceptions and the way you get access is to, excuse me, to own your perceptions and shift them yourself. And so literally in the parable, Jesus is inviting us to examine how we perceive God. Because how we perceive God will determine to a large degree how we interact with him. 
It will determine whether or not we are comfortable taking risks. It will determine whether or not we are comfortable accessing the wealth that he has placed inside of us, whether it be our talents, whether it be our abilities, whether it be something supernatural that transcends human concepts and human abilities. How comfortable are we dealing with mystery, for example? The Bible talks about mysteries, does it not? talks about the mystery of the kingdom, the mystery of Christ, <laughs> right? The, the mystery of God. Paul says, God, God your, ways are past, your, your ways are unsearchable. They're past finding out. So how comfortable are you with the unknown? See, if God is this hard taskmaster who essentially just does whatever he wants based on no system of sowing and reaping or no system of deposit and withdrawal or no system at all, he just kind of acts like whatever, however he wants to act like, then, and if your perception is that he's hard to please, that he's difficult, that he's a taskmaster, that he's restrictive, if that's your perceptions, then you will not be comfortable taking risks. You'll not be comfortable venturing out and so what happens is is out of our insecurities we create boxes of tradition to create the illusion of certainty so that we have the lie of security And so we don't want anyone touching our traditions because it, it ultimately it hits at our level of security because we're just not sure about God. Maybe he is hard. Maybe he is scary. Maybe he is somewhat to some degree monstrous. Now, you might ask yourself because, you know, you've been at this longer than I have. And, you know, God is just good all the time and all the time. God is good. <laughs> Right. And and so you may ask yourself, why in the world would anybody have a monstrous idea of who God is? And, you know, the interesting thing is, is we don't really. Can I just be honest with you? Can I just be honest? It's not our fault. It's, it's, this is not a criticism. I'm not looking to lay the blame at anybody's feet. And I certainly don't want you to feel bad about yourself. But we don't even understand our own minds and how they work. We don't even understand the levels and the depths of our own consciousness. To a large degree, we don't even know ourselves. So how is it that we can claim to know so much about God? <laughs> and here's what I mean by this. You, you, you and I, all right, so basic, just some basic... Um, Psychology, is that okay? You have a conscious mind, you have a subconscious mind, yes? Right? Most of us live, try to live anyway, out of our consciousness, out of our conscious mind, out of our self-consciousness. Alright? So, we can have a belief system up here at this level of consciousness that says God is good all the time and all the time God is good. And yet swimming around in the depths of our unconsciousness can be viruses, monsters. There can be sea monsters down there. <laughs> are, you, are you tracking with me? That believe something completely different or represent or, 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 or bring up a perception from the depths of our being, from the depths of our consciousness, into our mind when we get under pressure or we get into certain situations that we're not even aware of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Now, if, if you can't relate to that, you're not a human being. 
You are something else. We might need to send your DNA to whatever that thing is. What's it called? Ancestry.com or 23andMe or something and figure out what you are. Because all of us have been hijacked. All of us have had intentions and not acted fully congruently to our intentions and gotten into situations where we violated our, our values or we violated our purpose or our intent and wondered, why in the heck did I do that? Or why in the heck do I keep doing this? If, if, that, if that's, that's not you, you're, you're not a human being. You're something else. So the reality is, is that based on, there are lots of things. Have you ever thought about who God is to you and why you believe or how you know who God is to you? Because we make statements, and I'm going to challenge some things, so just listen to me and hear the whole matter before you respond. Because I'm going to start touching some of those buttons probably, because I'm after some of those viruses that are in your system that are preventing you from being able to access the fullness of what God wants you to be able to access. That's really what I'm after, all right? So you don't have to agree with me. And as a matter of fact, if, if this is an area of bondage for you, you won't agree with me right off the bat. But if it's true, my words will haunt you. <laughs> you will wake up at night wrestling with it, or you will hate me, or whatever the case may be. But that just lets you know... Something got in there that needs to go to war. <laughs> Paul said this. He said, we tear down strongholds. Strongholds are not spiritual air castles uh, occupied by some territorial spirit somewhere. Strongholds, he said, are, are imaginations, imaginings, because that's the depths of the, unconscious, of the subconscious mind. The subconscious mind thinks in pictures and stories and metaphors. And not rationally, and it's very, 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 very susceptible to suggestion, particularly when you're little, particularly when you're, when you're open. Right? I, I don't believe, uh, no, I'm not going to say that. We're going after enough tradition. Alright, so, so I'm going to hit on some of these things. But, but I've discovered through my own journey, and I shared this, you know, when I, when I came home last spring, how, you know, for years I've preached about the character of God as I understand it and, and talked about the goodness of God, right? And yet when, when under pressure and at the right moment something emerged from the depths of my own awareness where I saw God as very angry and very judgmental, Right? And there was fear attached to that that was unhealthy. And I had to process that. I had to get that out. So even though consciously I wasn't reproducing it, unconsciously it was causing me anxiety on several different levels. And I've shared with you how I've battled through anxiety disorders and panic attacks and things like that. And the root of it, here's the thing that, that, that just freaked me out. The root of it wasn't my childhood wounding and it wasn't something 
from the fourth generation and beyond. And it, <laughs> and it wasn't even something that was, you know, a, a, a demonic buffeting because of the abundance of revelation that's been given unto me. <laughs> it was it was my belief about who God was that was instilled in me from when I was a child. And what I realized was that a lot of my preaching, I wasn't even talking to you. I was wrestling with the sea monsters inside my own awareness, outside of my awareness, trying to get free. Is that okay? And hopefully people were benefited in the process. <laughs> Does that make sense? But I had to address some of these images. So that begs the question, how do some of these deeper level impressions about who God is, how do they get in us? And so we have to ask ourselves, how do we know what we know about God? Now, I am a good, well, I used to be. <laughs> I used to be a very good evangelical charismatic, right? And we value what? The Word of God, right? So we get our information about who God is from the Scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, right? And here's our problem. That's a problem. That is a problem. Because there are some very scary things about God in the scriptures. Now here's another problem that we have. You ready for this? We think... Alright. Jewish people understand this better than Christians. Faith, our faith, is a living faith. Would you agree? Everybody say it's a, it's a living faith. It's not a dead faith. Would you agree that it's a living faith? And you could compare it to a stream. Could you not? You could compare it to a river or a stream. Correct? And so, if you look at a river, it has a source, and the water of that river flows downward, right? We mistakenly believe that the water, that the closer we get to the source, the purer the water. We mistakenly believe the closer we get to the source, the purer the water. Just hold that in your mind for a second. We are, just with Christianity, not even talking about the Old Testament, we are two millennial, 2,000 years, over 2,000 years, downstream from the source. Which means that the water that we're drinking from has been fed by many different tributaries. Right? And we think that's a problem. We think if we can get back closer to the source, the purer it's going to be. Because we want to leave humanity out of the process. And God does not want to leave humanity out of the process. And if you believe that you're, you're tainted, like, let me just give you an example. I've, I've, I've done this before. I did a whole message on it. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, it says, The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, and who can know it? Only it doesn't say that. <laughs> the word that's used in the Hebrew for deceitful there is never, ever anywhere else in the Scripture. It's used several times. Never is it translated deceitful except in that verse. And the verse for wicked there, never is it translated in the scriptures as something that relates to immorality. 
or even something that's, that's bad or evil. So we can ask ourselves why it got translated that way, and there's reasons for that, but you just need to know that's not what it means. It, it actually, what it, what it, when it's talking about your heart, it's talking about the heart is very tender and sensitive and fragile, and it has great depths that are past finding out. That's really a better translation of that verse, which is why I'm saying we don't even understand our own consciousness. But if you think your mind is evil just because it's your mind, or you think your heart is evil just because it's your heart, that will cause you to disengage when you're engaging the scriptures and it will prevent you from being able to progress with a living faith. Here's what I mean by that. God wants us to wrestle with the scriptures and God wants us to think through things for ourselves in our own context. Which means the river should become richer and the river should become fuller as it goes down through the generations, and it should be more refined than when it began. And that means we have a responsibility to engage our own perceptions and decide, who is this God that we serve? So let me give you some examples. If you say, I know who God is because of the Scriptures then let's decide how we cherry-pick the Scripture. I've done this before, and I feel bad for you, because I'm going to mess up your Sunday school. Let me just give you an example. Just, okay, hear me out, all right? The Bible says, the Bible says, everybody say, the Bible says. I promise you, you can get on your phone right now and look it up. If Mike Brown were here, he'd be texting me my reference. There's a proverb in the book of Proverbs, which is the book of wisdom, that says a fool answers a matter before he hears it. So I'm not asking you to agree with everything I'm saying. What I'm asking you to do is give me a full hearing before you make up your mind. What I'm saying is heresy. If I took you to the local library, I could show you books. Uh, I could give you authors' names. Uh, their names escape me at the moment. I said it in the first service. Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins are two examples. How many of you have heard of them? They're what's called the New Atheists. One of them wrote a book called God is Not Good. Now here's our problem. In that book, he goes through our scriptures. Not just a little bit. A lot to point out that the God of the Bible is a monster, is not a good God. Now, how can that be possible? Because we say God is good, right? And, all, and then you say all the time, right? <laughs> and then we say all the time, and then you say God is good, right? It's a good Pentecostal tradition that we have, right? But how do we know that? How is it, if, 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 we're, if we're reading the same Bible, if it's coming from the Bible, then how can somebody publish a convincing book that's convinced a good portion of our population that God isn't good using our own scriptures? Let me give you a couple of examples. How many are familiar with God wiping out the Canaanites? Right? And God tells the Israelites, go in, wipe out all the Canaanites. All right, now just put it in a modern context. There's a group of people that believe their God is the true God. And they're the only ones that know this God. 
And in fact, it's a national God. It's a nationalistic God. And you have to be born into that race. Right? And their God is the true God. And anyone who doesn't believe that, anyone who disagrees, is an enemy. And they have a divine right to wipe out all the men, all the women, all the children, all the animals, burn all of their belongings, and take their property. And if that's not bad enough, we could go to Numbers. You have to forgive me because, again, my notes are not working. Uh, 31 or 33, somewhere in there. And you discover that Moses tells the Israelites, wipe these people out, kill all of them, but keep the virgins. Now, you've got to understand, in ancient culture, a virgin was not 23 years old. Are you breathing? Because uh, that would be too old. So Moses says, go kill all the men, all the children, all the women, and take the virgins as part of the spoils of war. So now we have a group of people. They have a divine right to go in and kill men, women, children, infants, but take all the little girls into a sex trade. Is that a... Is that something we want to endorse? It's in your Bible. And I've asked lots of people that are smarter than me, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with this? Well, God is just God, and he can do whatever he wants to do. Hmm. Or how about this one? Uh, This is one of my favorites. Um, Well, the Canaanites were so evil. You know, they were doing human sacrifices, child sacrifices, all that stuff. And so God had to eradicate that. Like they were the only ones at that time that were doing it. (laughs) So what was so special about the Canaanites? The Canaanites had two problems, according to the scripture. The Canaanites' first problem was their address. And the Canaanites' second problem was that Noah had a son who walked in after he had been drunk and saw him naked, and Noah got so angry that he cursed his grandson Canaan and said, Shem, that Canaan will serve Shem. And it just so happens the Israelites came from Shem, and the Canaanites came from Canaan. And while we're on the topic of Noah's Ark, you know, I had to do this for the kids. It was funny, at the Christian school, they wanted me to come in and teach on Noah's Ark, right? And it was, a, it was a good experience for me with some of my new perspectives because we make it such a nice sentimental story. We have these nice little arcs and we have all these little animals and we're telling and the kids, are, oh, look at the animals. and Isn't this a lovely story? And what we forget is that God repented that he made mankind and so he decided to wipe them off the earth. <laughs> it's not such a beautiful story when you, when you remember that. <laughs> That's why the Bible says, by the way, wiped out the Canaanites. Oh, but it was, I don't even want to go there. How many of those, the story of Saul and David? 
Saul is anointed first to be king. Why does Saul lose the kingdom? Why does Saul lose the kingdom? Why does he lose it? Because he didn't kill all of the Amalekites. God said, go in and kill all of the Amalekites. And he didn't do it, so he was disobedient. Right? We twist that scripture to beat up people that won't do what we want in church and say rebellion is is the sin of witchcraft, and we forget that his rebellion was he didn't go out and kill people. (laughs) Do you know why he was supposed to kill the Amalekites? You know what Samuel said? Go kill all the Amalekites because of something they did to Israel five centuries before. (laughs) Our country is not even... 300, three centuries old. Okay, let's do this one. We all love the, the, the Old Covenant promises of being blessed, right? From Deuteronomy, God said, if you're obedient, then I will bless you. I'll make you the head and not the tail. I'll make you above only and not beneath. I'll bless you coming in, bless you going out, in the city, in the field, all that stuff, right? Are you breathing, right? Remember that? And we love that. 14 verses of that. Then we got 60 some verses of, but if you're disobedient. And here's the thing that in there, buried in the book of Deuteronomy, it says this. God says this to his own people. God says this to his own people. He says, if you are disobedient. And he, he lists these curses. And one of the curses, he says, famine will come on you that will be so severe that you will be eating your own babies to survive. And then God says this, just like I took pleasure in blessing you, I will take pleasure in cursing you. No different to me. So are you going to be obedient? Are you going to be disobedient? We never preach on those verses. And then our kids go to colleges where their professors in philosophy classes bring all this stuff out and the kids have major crises of faith because, here's the unfortunate thing, their philosophy professor oftentimes knows the scriptures better than their pastors. Because we don't engage those verses. They don't preach very well (laughs) for crowds. And really, do we really want to believe in a God that's like that? So so we have a problem. And it's not a new problem. In fact, it's a problem that goes back to the very roots of Christianity. In fact, I'm going to make a statement and I challenge you to look at it. You wouldn't have a Bible if the early Christians did not have a problem with some of the stuff in the Old Testament. Did you know that? You know how you got your Bible? Would you like to know? Would you like a, just we'll take a time out for a brief little Christian history lesson? Because you didn't have a canon of scripture. If you were Christian for the first four centuries, you didn't have a canon of scripture. Four hundred years. Our country's not even three hundred years old. But somehow, if we get closer to the source, it's pure. Oh, wait a minute. You know how you got it? There was a guy named Marcion. Everybody just say with me, Marcion. And Marcion was a Christian and he was wealthy. He was a ship trader. And he had a problem with the God of the Old Testament. 
And so he had access to the writings of Paul and the writings of Luke. And he decided, reading Paul, that Paul and Jesus are talking about a different God than the God that Israel served. Because Jesus and Paul are presenting a God who's good, and the Old Testament presents a God who's not good. And so therefore he said we should have a canon of scriptures that tells us who God is, and it should be the writings of Paul. And Yahweh in the Old Testament, he's what they call a demagogue. In other words, the, here's, when Jesus was talking to the, 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 the Israelites and saying, my father, he was trying to let them know that he served a totally different God. I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying this is what Marcion believed. And so what he said was that that God was a terrorist God that basically created earth and was a monster God and was terrorizing and terrifying humanity. And killing them and destroying them and slaughtering them. And Jesus came to reveal there's a God even higher than that. And he's the one that introduced the idea of a canon of scripture. Only his canon was the writings of Paul, Luke, and Acts. Which is why your creeds begin. You know, the stuff we don't like to learn as Pentecostals, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, all that early Christian stuff. This is why your creeds, all of them begin. We believe in one God, maker of heaven and earth. Because Marcion said, no, a different God made heaven and earth. We believe in one God, maker of heaven and earth, creator of all things visible and invisible. So if it hadn't been for this issue of struggling with Scripture, you wouldn't even have a Bible. And if you want to just dismiss it and say, well, God is God, so you can hold on to your belief that all Scripture is to be weighed equally, then you are not aware of how Christians have wrestled with their faith throughout the centuries. It's not a new issue. We're not the first ones to have to deal with it. And our problem is we don't have good answers for it. So are, 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 you, are you breathing okay? All right, so let's get into this just real quick. Let's try to bring this home for just a second. Come with me to Exodus 33. I'm just going to pull it up here. You don't have to. Maybe. It's not changing. Oh, Exodus 33. Moses says to God, now show me your glory, right? Here's the context. Moses gets the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. While he's getting the Ten Commandments from God, what's Israel doing? Anybody know? Israel is fashioning an idol out of a cow, and they're having a party that would make Hugh Hefner blush. And Moses comes down off the mountain, and he sees all this that's going on, and before he, he, he just smashes the, the, the thing and the, the stones, right? So now he's, dealing, he's engaging God a second time, because these are pictures. There's going to be two covenants. The first covenant is written on stones with the finger of God. So if you remember Cecil B. DeMille's, uh, the Ten Commandments, like the lightning comes out and, and then the tablets are just given. But the second time, the second time Moses is told to hewn the tablets himself. Because God is choosing to work with humanity, not apart from humanity. See, God in His holiness apart, <laughs> I don't have time to get into all that. 
So the second time, Moses is cooperating, and Moses says, show me your glory. The first time he didn't see the glory, he just got the law. The second time around, he says, show me your glory. And incidentally, when God talks to him the second time, he talks to him about the powers of the heavens, because he talks to him about the feasts. He doesn't talk to him about the law. And Paul said the feasts prefigure and pre-shadow what's coming in Christ. All right. There's a mystery in there, but you can figure it out. (laughs) Are you breathing? So he says, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, the character that I'm about to show you originates from me and my choice, independent of what anybody does. It's the causeless cause. It's the rootless root of being. It cannot be acted on or affected by anything else because it's coming from he who is the highest. So Moses goes in the cleft of the rock, in the wound of the rock. There's so much typology of Christ in there, but we don't have time to cover it all. And the Lord comes and you know what he does? He shows him his backside. He shows him his back. He puts his hand and... Shows him his backside. Because he said, no one can live and see my face. And here's what he says. The Lord is... Let me back up. When he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So let's just stick with those. Compassion, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Does that sound like the God who in the book of Psalms, it says, takes pleasure in an infant's skull being crushed against the rocks. Does it sound like that kind of God? Does it sound like the kind of God that would order the extinction of a people group that he created and sexual slavery? Does it sound like that kind of a God? Does it sound like the kind of God who takes as much pleasure? So I'm tell- I promise you that's in your Bible. You can come up to me after and we can look at it. Because some of you are looking at me like that can't possibly be in there. I promise you it's in there. It's sanitized a little bit, but it's still in there. Are you breathing? Does that sound like the same kind of God? So what's going on? Are there two gods, like Marcion said? The church condemned that as heresy. They were able to work it out without having to come up with two gods. And I don't want to take time to go through each one of those. Let's come to 2 Corinthians 3. Now, if you read 2 Corinthians 3, understand. Eh, let's don't get into all that. Let's just do this. Let's just read this. Therefore, Paul says, since we have such hope, we are very bold. Now, look at this. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Okay, so let me give you some more information about what we just read. Moses sees God's backside, right? And he's now reflecting so much glory, because here's the issue. God said, you can't see my face. So Moses doesn't see the face of God. Moses sees his hinder parts. And he's radiating like the moon. Sorry, no. He's radiating with... with (laughs) Lord, help me. Please forgive me. He's radiating with glory. 
And the Israelites can't take it. So what's he do? He covers his face. Why? So he wears a veil the rest of his life over his face. Now look at what Paul's saying. We, those that are preaching the gospel, we are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, to this day, we can say that today, just like Paul could say that then. To this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Where is the veil? On the mind, right? Keep watching. Even to this day, he says it again, even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there are freedom. There's freedom. And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. And we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Now, the first part of 2 Corinthians 3, he says there's a difference between the letter and the spirit. And he says we've transitioned from the letter to the spirit. Because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Are you doing all right? Are you tracking with me? Right? So here's what he's saying. When Moses is read, there is a veil because of what's in the mind. So you've got to understand what's happening. Here's what's happening. Here's what's Go all the way back to Adam, okay? Because I can't seem to do a message if I don't go all the way back to Adam. Adam eats the tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil and what happens he hears the sound of the lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day it's horrible translation the word cool there is the word for spirit and the word day there is the word for light so he hears god in the spirit in the realm of spirit and light but he becomes afraid so he hides himself he withdraws himself and he hides himself and god comes out and says where are you adam and adam says i was afraid i knew you basically i knew you to be a hard man who took what did not belong to you and who reaped where you did not sow. And so I was afraid and I hid myself in a cloth. Because man in his fall, his perceptions changed. Never had he heard the voice of God until he ate at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Never had he heard the voice of God and been afraid. Never had he seen the light and been afraid. But his perceptions about who God was had changed because he believed the serpent's lie that God really wasn't good and God was holding out. So you have two things going on in the scriptures. You have, particularly in the Old Covenant, you have really it's being written by people who are perceiving God through the fallen mind of Adam. So what you're dealing with is oftentimes the projections of the fallen mind of Adam. But underneath that, there are flashes of glory. So in the story of Moses, God is being presented as a harsh tribal God because that was the understanding of the ancient peoples about their God. 
But embedded in the story is there's coming two new tablets. There's coming a new covenant that's not based on the law. It's based on the powers of the heavens. And a revelation of God's glory. And you see a flash of it. But it's being read, it's being filtered through or it's being veiled through the fallen mind of Adam. So when Samuel says, kill all the Amalekites because God's ticked off about something that happened 500 years ago. You have to take Samuel's word for it that that's what God said. Are you breathing? And so here's the issue. Here's the power of the new covenant and here's what we miss. Are you ready? In Jesus, God enters the argument. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. And in all things is life, and that life is the light of men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, or grace and faithfulness. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ, who is, in other places, the express image of God. Wait a minute. In the law, you were told, don't make any image, don't make God in any image of anything on the earth. God told humanity that. And that's why to this day, Jews will not receive Christianity, because Jesus is an icon. He's an image. And the Christians are saying he is the image of God. Because here's the issue. God's telling people, in your fallen state, if you create, out of your perceptions, if you try to create an image and say, this is what God is like, it will be tainted by your fallen perceptions, and therefore it will lead you astray. So God says, I'm not going to mediate my presence to you through a book or through a letter or through another person. I'm going to come in the flesh as the final word about who God is. And I will create my own icon so that you can see my image clearly and fully of who I am. And this is the love of God, that he loved us and sent his son to die for us. So the greatest revelation of the goodness of God that we have is not just Christ. It is Christ dying on the cross. Because on the cross, here's what he says. Okay, let's do it this way. Let me transport you back just quickly. If you were Greco-Roman, you hated your gods. You hated them. If you know Greek mythology, you, Zeus, Prometheus creates, the huma- creates humanity, right? And he goes to Zeus and says, look what I do. And Zeus says, Ugh. And Zeus says, that's okay, they won't make it through the winter. So Prometheus steals fire from Zeus's lightning bolt and gives it to humanity so that they survive winter. And Zeus is so ticked off that he did that, that he sentences Prometheus to whatever. So the Greeks are not worshiping their gods because they love their gods. They're worshiping their gods because they're tyrants. So you know what they're doing? They're building houses for them and they're feeding them. Maybe if we build them a nice house, temple, and we bring them some food, some offerings, they won't be, they, they won't be upset with us and we'll be okay with the gods. So Jesus steps on the scene. Oh, Jesus stepped. And really, Israel's God wasn't that much different. Their perception of God. And so Jesus steps on the scene and he says, 
I have a new covenant. I have two new tablets. He, he steps on the scene and he says, he says, no longer do you have to feed God in order to appease God. No longer does God require a sacrifice in order to be appeased because he's angry. I've come as the Lamb of God. And this is my body broken for you. I'm here to feed you. This is my blood shed for the remission of your sins. So you don't have to worry about what you did that might be angering God and causing him to bring his lightning bolts down from heaven upon you. God, Jesus is coming with a whole new unveiling and a whole new revelation of who God is. And he is, it, it is not about sinners in the hands of an angry God who had to be appeased by the death of His Son. It's about God in the hands of angry sinners who had to be appeased because they did not understand who God was because they were still viewing Him through the fallen mind of Adam. That's why Luke throughout the book of Acts attests the death of Christ not to the wrath of God, but to the wrath of humanity. You, by angry hands, have taken and slain the true, the true and the just one. And so what God is doing there is He's saying, I'm the God who would rather be punished in order to have relationship with you than punish you for your disobedience. I'm the God who would rather come and give you the bread of life than require that you bring a sacrifice to satisfy me. Because I am the causeless cause and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And there is nothing you can do that will make God love you more or love you less. It does not matter what you've done. He has come for the world. And anyone who chooses to come and drink and desires of the water of life may come and drink freely from the water of life. And here's the issue. I am the God who wants to be so intimate that I will not be mediated by a book or a representative. You all, with unveiled face, can behold the glory of the Lord who is in the Spirit. So that we are not people of the book, we are people of the Spirit. We are not people of the letter. We are not serving a ministry of death and we are not serving a ministry of condemnation. Go back and read 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If the ministry of death had glory, how much more will the ministry of life? If the ministry of condemnation had glory, how much more will the ministry of justice? If the ministry of the letter had glory, how much more the ministry of the Spirit? So that we don't get to know who God is from a book, we have to engage the person of Christ. We have to engage the person of the Holy Spirit. And we have to allow the work of the Spirit to peel away the veils of our own fallen thinking and mind so that we shift our perceptions away from thinking that God is hard, that God is unjust, and that He's difficult to please. Into the God who has embraced all of humanity because, now watch this. What's God tell Moses? No one can live and see my face. So, if you read Second Corinthians, follow Paul's thought, you get to chapter 4, he says, if one died for all, then all died. So that those who live might live... <laughs> Not unto themselves, their own ideas and opinions and beliefs about who God is, but live unto the one who loved them and gave himself for them. Yeah. 
Make sense to you? No one can see my face and live, but if you've been given the gift of eternal life, you can't die, which is why Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life, that you may know him, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent, which is why in the new covenant now with unveiled face, we can behold the fullness of the glory of who God is in the face of Christ Jesus, because when we behold the face of Christ, we are beholding the face of God. So that we see what Moses could never see. Now that, my beloved brothers and sisters, is Christian theology and Christian revelation that has been stewarded by the true servants of God throughout the centuries. And our culture needs a fresh hearing. I'll leave you with this. The Eastern, when you're talking about Christians, you're talking about your fundamentalists that you've met and known. It's just true. Christianity is much bigger than that. When you're talking about Christians, are you talking about the Ethiopian church? Are you talking about the Oriental church? Are you talking about the Greek church? Or are you just talking about this little splinter of the Latin church that you know about? Because the churches in the East, I heard, a, I heard an Eastern bishop say this. Now, they've stewarded a different understanding of the mystery of Christ than what we've been given. And don't just condemn them because you think everything they do is wrong because you don't understand what they do. You haven't taken the time to learn. Yes. I heard an Eastern bishop say, Atheism in the West is not a whole out, is not a full rejection of the gospel. He said atheism in the West is the rejection of what he called the Western perversion of the gospel. And it is actually an act of repentance. Because it's shifting perception away saying we reject that mess. That can't possibly be God. If God is like that, how many of you have ever heard this? If that's what God is like, I don't want to serve him. And we get all offended because our traditions have been. And yet other Christians behold that and they say, thank God, that's an act of repentance in the West. All right, I'm done. <laughs> Let's stand up. Was that TMI? Are you sure? (laughs) If you didn't take anything else away, take this. God is gracious. God is compassionate. God is slow to anger. And he's abounding in love and truth. Faithfulness. And that's just his backside. He gets even better from there. Is the God that you relate to gracious? Is the God you relate to compassionate? Is the God you relate to slow to anger? Is the God that you relate to full of love? Is the God you relate to full of kindness?
David expounded on it in Psalm 103. He said, Lord, you've not treated us according to our sins, nor handled us according to our iniquities. But as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed the transgressions of your people. That is worthy of worship. So let's just open our hearts for a moment. Let's call upon the God who revealed himself in the person of Christ. And welcome him. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you for the outpouring of the Spirit in our day. I thank you for the outpouring of revelation. God, the Holy Spirit is moving right now all across this room to help you, not do it for you, but help you to release His grace and His power right now to help you shift beliefs, beliefs that have tormented you, beliefs that have caused you anxieties, beliefs that have caused you to not feel uncomfortable with mystery and with the unknown, Uh, voices that you thought were the voice of God but were really hard taskmasters and have nothing to do with the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those things are being exposed right now in the light of His truth and in the light of His presence. And if you want, you can be healed right now at very deep levels of your psyche, even beyond your understanding or awareness. All you have to do is open up and say, Lord, I want that. Lord, I want you just like in the beginning, the way the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos and the darkness of creation. Lord, I want you to go into the chaos and the darkness of my own belief system. And I want you to hover and I want you to bring forth your light and your truth. And Father, we receive that right now in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Come on, lift your hands, saints, and just begin to honor Him for just a moment. Just begin to worship Him. His presence is all over in this room. And right now, I thank you, Lord, for downloads. I thank you for electrifying your people. I thank you for flooding our hearts with the healing light of Christ. I thank you for shifting traditions and belief systems that no longer serve us and that we're able to let go of by the power of your Son, by the power of your love, by the power of your cross. Father, we receive the work of revelation in our hearts. We receive receive the work of revelation in our minds and we receive the work of healing that comes as a result. Lord, we come against anxieties. We come against fear. We come against panic right now in all of its various forms in the name of Jesus. And we take authority over those shackles and we command those things to come off the minds and the hearts of your people. Lord, we thank you for parting the veils of our own thinking. We thank you for interrupting the dullness of our own hearts and bringing life and bringing truth And bringing real, genuine righteousness into our existence. And we claim it now. We receive it now by faith. Come on, saints. Just We receive it now by faith. It is our heritage. It is our inheritance. It is our right as sons and daughters of God to know you in such deep ways and powerful ways. And we give you thanks and we give you praise. In Jesus' name. I want to invite you this morning, if you're feeling moved upon by the Spirit, we have people that are ready to pray for you. To maybe just seal what's, whatever it is that God has stirred or begun to do in your life. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we bless you. Father, anything that I've said that 
cause us the wrong kind of trouble. Lord, let those things just be forgotten and fall away. But whatever I've said, Lord, that agitates traditions that hold us in bondage, let those things go deep into our hearts and deep into our lives and go to war against those things that might be holding us captive. And we ask for this in the mighty name of Jesus. And we give you praise and thanks for it. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening.